Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we're doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Alicia Garza. And I'm Ai-jen Poo, and we are super excited today because on Sunstorm, we have the one and only Cecile Richards. Yes, Cecile is not only our dear friend, but she is the former president of Planned Parenthood and a co-founder in Supermajority, alongside me and Ai-jen. Supermajority is the organization we launched for women who want to work together to build economic and political power organize for gender equity, and transform this country. Yes. Welcome, Cecile. (laughs) It's so great to be with you all. And it's such an auspicious time. Indeed. Indeed. That's kind of like the understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Auspicious is one word. Yeah. All right. So where do we even start? I mean... Cecile, how are you keeping yourself going right now? How are you staying focused? Well, it really helps actually getting to talk to you all all the time. And just, you know, I think in this time of COVIDness and being separate from so many people that I love, I think just being able to think about how we can use this moment most effectively to build this unbelievable and capitalize on this incredible energy that's coming from women everywhere. This whole season of Sunstorm is about finding your lane. And part of what we're trying to do here is also be another channel through which people can understand that there's so many lanes and so many ways to contribute. And I'm curious about your journey um, in finding your lane. What has motivated you in in making choices about where you want to spend your time and your energy as you look back? It's funny. I think some folks grew up and thinking, okay, I'm going to find something, like I'll find like a career, I'll I'll get like a degree in something and that'll be how my life goes. And that hasn't ever been my life, I suppose. The lanes have always changed a bit. But I will say, and I, Jen, you and I talk about this, the privilege I've had in my life of always being able to choose what I did for a living, support my family, and to choose to do that, to make social change is such such a privilege. You know, I worked as a union organizer for many, many years with women who had damn few options, um, if any, about what they did. And yet they also chose to be rebels and, and change makers. Um, at Planned Parenthood, I saw the power of investing in young women and how much I learned from them. I mean, they see the world differently. They think about organizing differently. And I guess that's really, to me, the, the joy of getting to do this work at Supermajority now is, you know, we're I'm surrounded by young women who have nothing but opportunity ahead. And so try to get out of their way so, so that they have the space and the freedom and the support and encouragement to lead is that really is completely exciting to me. And I do believe that women and women of color, young people, they are the agents of change. They always have been. And the thought that we could now maybe just kind of supercharge that or so that women didn't have to wait 20 years to be reaching a certain point, but actually could be doing it much, much younger means the world could change that much faster. I think that is really what supermajority is about, is mm-hmm. uh, making change faster and in in bigger ways. Mm -hmm. You know, making change faster, I think, is on the minds of women everywhere. 
And as we know, COVID-19, lovingly known as Miss Rona, um, <laughs> has disproportionately affected women, especially low-income women and women of color, um, in addition to unemployment or having to work like risky frontline jobs, women are taking on huge burdens at home, childcare, elder care, managing remote school, trying to find hand sanitizer when it's sold out everywhere, trying to make sure that the masks are washed. I mean, we're tired. <laughs> we want change now. So right. how can people who are already overloaded with the kind of chaos of this moment really find space for more action? How do we make political engagement a realistic option for people who are already holding and juggling so much? Listen, Alicia, it's such an important question. And I want to just go back to something you said, what I think is important, is that all the things you, you're saying are right and have always been true for women, particularly for women that are low incomes or working two or three jobs, women of color, depending on where, where they live and their circumstances. Women have always had to be holding it all together. And I, I think what the what COVID has done is actually just put this like massive spotlight on all the systemic issues that women deal with, you know, and that's what we hear at Supermajority a lot, which is like, you know, I remember this woman, young woman saying to me, um, in one of our early focus groups, she was in Texas and she said, you know, I worked really hard to get maternity benefits at the the company that I work in. And of course, by the time I finally got them, it was too late for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but at least she felt like, okay, this is going to be different. But she realized, she said, but we can't do this like one company at a time. This is a <laughs> system wide problem. So that's when true. are we actually going to say, Okay, actually, women are half the workforce, or they were before, you know, Corona, because of course the coronavirus has now taken women out of the workforce in um, huge numbers, and it's going to be a really, really long re- recovery back. But how do we look at the things that are systemically keeping women back? And mm-hmm. there's so many: lack of care for kids, lack, of, you know, mm-hmm. why are we still in an agrarian school calendar? That I do not understand. Uh, so every right. mom's got to figure out what to do with their kid for three months. It's time that we actually think about systems change so women don't feel like, okay, each one of us is inadequate to somehow figure out the way to fix this. And mm. which I think relates to your point too, which is in terms of engagement, one is saying, okay, we got to have bigger ideas, right? Because it's one thing to phone bank for a candidate to get elected to do something. And it's another to say, okay, but we're doing this in service, not just of actually changing an election or electoral outcome, but actually changing the agenda uh, and changing sort of big national policy in a way that the domestic workers that you all have done so successfully putting caregiving and caregivers at the top of the agenda um, for the first time. And then the other is, it's like any kind of organizing, right? It's just giving people small manageable pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, this week I've spent every night I've kicked off a phone bank, a text bank, a whatever. And honestly, for some women, um, I guess a lot of women, they are really busy, but that one hour that they actually spend on a Zoom with women from all over the country, calling women in Arizona uh, mm-hmm. to make sure that they are ready to vote is in really empowering. Because otherwise you could just feel like you're just surviving to survive. So That's I do true. think we have to find ways for women to feel like they can make a difference. That's um, right. Because they are. That's right. For some, it may be harder to figure out how to draw the line between getting on that phone bank and the level and scope 
of change that we need to see. But I think as someone who's been organizing for such a long time and seen how policy change happens, I think it would be great to hear from you kind of how, just draw that line for people a little bit more sharply. Like how, how do we get from here to the kind of policy systems change that you just talked about? Well, I'm going to take a, a good example, what I think is a good example of childcare. It's just something I'm yeah. kind of obsessed with because it's, we get, we got no plan, right? I mean, the government bailed out the airline industry for $50 billion and spent like almost nothing on childcare. So what, what would actually have had a more effect in terms of allowing people to stay in the workforce and caregivers to get paid? There are stacks of great childcare policies that we could adopt. And, and in some ways, I would say I'm pretty agnostic about what one we do. We just have to build the political will in this country to say, this has to go to the top of the list. This can't be the thing that never gets talked about, or it gets talked about after we've already funded the military, the roads and bridges, all the other things. And so to me, that's the idea, Ijen, is how do you build a big enough badass cadre of women uh, and people who support gender equity in this country to say, no, 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 this is going up. This is going to go up to the top. That to me is empowering because then people feel like I don't have to be an expert in every little policy thing. I just have to make sure that it happens. And I mean, Alicia, obviously you have so much experience in this, but the other thing to me is we just can never, never quit. And I learned this at Planned Parenthood because, you know, all the things that we wanted to do, we could never do because it was impossible and we just didn't give up. And that's how we finally got birth control coverage for folks. It was never going to come down from Congress. It was just because people never gave up. And look, Alicia, on all your work, your extraordinary leadership in the Black Lives Matter movement, that's what I see happening there, too, is folks just saying, no, this isn't like a one week you know, or a, you know, this is the, you know, March of the month. This is a systemic problem that we have to be committed to solving. Everyone's got to be in. Hmm. I mean, I just want to do a quick follow-up here because, you know, Cecile, you've been on my mind a ton in the last couple of weeks as we're literally watching this country, like, do lots of flips and backflips and front flips and all the gymnastics. And, you know, <laughs> Speaking of like never giving up, I mean, I think we'd be remiss if we did not kind of rewind the track a little bit to you kind of leading an organization in a deeply tumultuous time where there was a a whole push, right, to completely obliterate your organization. And this is when you were leading Planned Parenthood. And I guess what I'm sitting with here is that I think it would be wonderful for us to go a little bit behind the scenes in that story as a way to kind of highlight, like, how do you actually stay the course in the midst of like nonsense? Like, what did you draw on? What did you need to like be up in that, stay focused, stay clear, not get deterred? Were you scared? Were you freaked out? Because you looked really poised. (laughs) You looked like you had it all the way together. But I just, I feel like it's always important too for people who are like, can I be a change maker? To just like pull back the curtains and be like, yo, we... We all share right? all the kind of angst, the insecurities, et cetera. But like, here's how I kept going. Here you were in front of the entire world, right? 
breaking it down about why Planned Parenthood literally um, deserved to continue to exist. And you were under a lot of fire. So how did you do it? How did you stay the course and how did you keep going? The real amazing thing about Planned Parenthood, people used to always say like, oh my God, it must be so, you know, they come up to me on the street. Like, are you doing okay? This must be so hard. And uh, what I try to tell is like for every nasty, you know, letter or whatever I received, I got 99 from people who said, thank goodness for Planned Parenthood. That was a place I got family planning when I didn't have any insurance, or that was the place I got my annuals, or I turned to Planned Parenthood when there was no one else I could. And frankly, that's why having men in government and no representation is why they, how they just get it wrong. They actually don't get it. They don't get um, how we live our lives. And so actually being in that, that one congressional hearing, which I think is probably what you're referring to, I mean, it was the ultimate mansplaining event. I'm not a Zen person. I'm like a, I'm like a in motion all the time. <laughs> but there was kind of a Zen moment there when I realized, you know, because every time I tried to say something, they jumped in and like, you know, like it was very calming. You thought, okay, well, if someone's got the mic on national television and they're really making an idiot of themselves, maybe you should just let them have more <laughs> oxygen. And, 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 and the other thing I realized, Alicia, is that what they really wanted was a fight. They wanted like this, like big macho, like, we're going to tell you, and then I'm going to get mad. And, and when you don't do that, they really get mad. And then they're like, the veins start coming out of their forehead. And, <laughs> and I think that is just like, it's important to have representation in government because mm -hmm. there's just some guys who they just, they think differently. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I would just say about that moment is, you know, something like one in four women in the country have been to Planned Parenthood. That's a lot of people. And there is something about sitting even in a hostile congressional hearing, knowing that you're not there by yourself and that there are a lot of folks that are counting on you and that are with you and sort of just trying to feel that warm embrace, if you will. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, as women, we always think we can't do something. And we have to do everything perfectly. And of course, there's always a million reasons why you make mistakes and you would embarrass yourself, your family. And after I did that, I was like, oh, I can do that, you know? Mm. Um, and so I just like think, that's what I love seeing all these women running for office, seeing that women can do so much uh, if we just give them the chance. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. Yes. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is power of women's personal stories. And I think they are inspiring. And they're also, there's this other side to it. And I think in the political context, you've pointed out the downside that, you know, it's unfortunate that women have to reveal deeply personal things about ourselves in order to be heard <laughs> sometimes. And that it's such an important point, especially thinking about the Me Too moment. And, you know, there's a way we have to both speak truth to power and we shouldn't have to be telling our abortion stories to the world just to have health care. Right. Um, and so how do you think about the balance there of like leveraging the power of our stories and our experiences and not having to always just do that? <laughs> Right. I know. It's like we just have to like lay ourselves bare every every time. Single. And then we're called cold if we don't get personal and intimate, you know. Ugh. Although, you know, uh, I did tell um, the story of, of having an abortion and my lack of regret about it, that it was such an important decision to be able to make. So I'd say 
what was important to me about that was one is I could. I have a supportive family. I didn't feel shame. You know, a lot of things that really are hard. And there are women who stop me still in airports and say, thanks for sharing your story. Old women Mm. pulling me aside, whispering, still afraid Mm. to tell their story. And I know a, a big part of what's happened with the Me Too movement and the really courageous work of Toronto and so many others is just getting rid of all the shame that we've all been made to live with all of our lives. And so in some ways, it is very liberating mm-hmm. to be able to say, you know what, I just don't have to feel bad about myself anymore. And there is something really powerful in that. And I think it's also so important that we always tell anyone, your story is your story. And however you want to share it or not share it is your business. But there is something um, sometimes where you just feel like, okay, that, that, that was important maybe to a couple of people, maybe help them feel stronger, feel like they could do the next thing. And, and I think that's what, I think that's what this movement of women is about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's talk about supermajority because more and more and more I'm getting messages like, how do I get involved? This is just out of control. Where can I start? And so it'd be great to just do a quick rundown. Like, What is supermajority up to right now? How can people get involved? And why should you get involved? Well, one, because it feels better than just being angry and frustrated. And, you know, so I was like, I was like, like, turn off the television and just go do something, even a little thing, because it's going to feel good. better, you're going to feel better. And it's interesting what you said, Alicia, because I think for some of us who've been organizers, like the two of you, like all of our lives, you think there can't possibly be a person left that isn't already like doing stuff. And yet we find them every day. We're going like, okay, I just, I just, this is too much. And so I do hope that no matter if you've been an activist for your entire life, or if you're just getting started, this is a place where you can find community and just sort of take, take the next step. Clearly right now we've got, how many days is it now? I, I keep forgetting the count, but all focus is on getting people to vote, particularly getting women to vote because women are the majority of voters and can and will uh, determine the outcome of this election. So in this very, very specific time, folks can go to supermajority.com. One, you can volunteer. So you can text bank, you can phone bank. There's all kinds of women that are still need information about voting so you can actually take action. At the bare minimum, you can go and find out, are you registered to vote? And believe me, everybody should check and see if they're still registered because the, as we know, the rampant effort to try to disenfranchise folks is ongoing. Uh, find out if you're registered to vote. In some states, you can still register uh, to vote. And some days you can, some states you can register on the day of the election. So making sure you know, you can find out where your polling place is. You can find out what your early voting options are. Because this country has, again, and we talk about systemic problems, the goal has never been to get everybody to vote. So we make it as complicated as possible for people to get that information. And I mean, we, we could talk about all the examples and even my home state of Texas, that just outrageous things they're doing to try to um, make it harder harder for folks to vote. But Supermajority um, has built that tool. So at least for this election, people can find out the rules. And when we think about, okay, if we elect a new president and vice president, if we elect a new United States Senate, one of the first orders of business has to be democracy reform. Mm. Election day should be a national holiday. I mean, it should be 
open registration all across the country. Mm-hmm. We this state by state business is obviously um, it was set up that way for for a reason. And so I think it's really important. That is one of the things I hope at supermajority post election that we can really be totally part of the I think massive wave to get get serious voting reform in this country. Mm. That's so, so important. I mean, the sophistication, I was so funny because, you know, we were doing a lot of research and uh, talking to women who are not regular voters, some who really weren't, were very seldom voted, you know, doing very in-depth conversations. Their fundamental understanding about how ridiculous the electoral college is, is like, they're like asking, like, how could someone get 3 million more votes and not be the president of the United States? Right. So, I mean, this is deeply understood, deeply felt, and I think a real opportunity to reassess um, and I hope make big change on how we elect, um, how we run elections and how we make sure that everybody can vote and that their votes are counted. It does seem like there's way more awareness about the importance of democracy reform and all the pieces that you just laid out. And do you feel like we're in a moment where some of the stuff that we've talked about forever might actually be possible? I do. But again, it's just just like we were talking about. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we need to build a political will. This has to just be a non-negotiable. And look, I think too, things don't just happen. As we know, they happen because people organize around them. They talk about them. They lift that up. And so to give credit where where credit's due, there was nothing more important to me than Stacey Abrams, you know, race for governor of Georgia, one, to excite people all across the country that this woman was making this historic race and also see firsthand the rampant voter suppression that happened in the state of Georgia. I think we all know, you know, if all the votes had been counted and everyone had been allowed to vote, Stacey would be governor today. And I'm so proud of her for continuing that fight on, right? So I do think that it's because of folks like Stacey Abrams and others who've just said, we're not going to just say, oh, well, that happened, but we're going to actually fight to make it different. Mm -hmm. Mm, Absolutely. When I think about some of my favorite moments over the last year or so, many of them were with uh, the two of you doing supermajority work. We did so much. I mean, (laughs) I can't even. We did some wild stuff. Some wild stuff. The bus tour. The bus. The bus. bus. Um, (laughs) What what are some of your favorite moments, uh, supermajority moments over the the course of the last few years. I guess it hasn't been a few years. It's just been a year. <laughs> you know, there were there have been, yes, hilarious times. And of course, I'm an organizer at heart. So I like to be out in the field. And I mean, we've had, I think the three of us, you're right, have had some extraordinary sort of moments. But, you know, one of the things that was important, I think, to all of us is to say in the presidential primary that candidates needed to like listen to women, not just mm-hmm. talk to women, they needed to listen to women. And so of course we did a series of presidential um, conversations or listening sessions. And I'll never forget being in, in Austin, Texas, where we had um, Mayor Castro, you know, in a small restaurant um, on the east side with a packed audience of women, almost all Latina, many of whom probably didn't speak English. And so, you know, dual translation and I mean, there were just people were weeping that the thought that someone who um, was running for president, who could be president, could still be president, was sitting in this small room 
hearing from women and their stories was one of the most powerful times I remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me is, it's why this work matters. It is Mm -hmm. like bringing women together, you know, giving this spot where they can influence not only their own future, but the future of the country. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, that was a special, special time. All right, let's jump into future forward, but also very much into the present question. So Cecile, you and Ijen and I have been organizing in this movement collectively for a while. <laughs> um, I got a lot more years on you than uh, Alicia, but that's okay. You've been very, very diplomatic. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I am going to ask you to provide some perspective here, knowing that um, where we enter in um, has a lot to do with how we see the future in our movements. So, you know, more and more people, I think, have found the freedom, the support, and the language that they need to actually opt out of the gender binary. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of progress here, like yeah. states offering a non binary gender option on driver's licenses. We're also seeing many more non-binary and two-spirit candidates running for office. But, you know, I I think we've had this um, really interesting conversation that's unfolded over the last maybe decade, right, about the implications for women's organizations. And I, I think that the women's movement certainly has not been perfect as it's related to gender. And even though we are fighting for gender equality, right, there are things that get in the way, including, right, being narrow in our understanding of what gender looks like. Um, I guess what I want to ask here is, how does our movement need to shift in order to make sure that we're bringing everybody with us? And how can we navigate these different experiences of gender in ways that lift up more people as opposed to leave out more people? Listen. It's such an incredibly important and profound question and one I don't think, we certainly don't have the answer to. And, you know, it's interesting when supermajority started, uh, I know we had a lot of conversations, the three of us and, and other, other co-founders about this, this issue because, you know, I think we are moving to a less gendered world mm-hmm. in, in all ways. Um, and even when we launched, I think, you know, a third of the folks who joined supermajority do not use she, her pronouns. And so I think being attuned to that and figure out how do you fight for a world where gender is not in any way limiting gender identity, um, and also balance that with the recognition that there are so many institutions that being identified as a woman is, is hugely challenging. Um, So I think those two things, if you're, um, what is it, like Gloria Steinem always says, you know, like if you're, what's the definition of a movement is like you're in, you're moving. (laughs) And so I would hope that for supermajority, that this is a conversation that is continuing to grow. Um, Mm -hmm. As we know, too, just representation by gender doesn't, there are women in the United States Senate who routinely vote against the interests of I'd say women of people of all genders. And so just having um, that identifier is not actually that helpful. And that's part of the reason we developed the majority rules with obviously enormous amount of help from the the two of you and thousands of people across the country, just Mm -hmm. kind of 
what is the country we want to build and live in? And then how do we start organizing around that? And I think your your point, Alicia, is really important. Like, how do we use gender in a way that isn't a limiter, isn't a construct that makes us smaller, but that actually can can make us more powerful? Mm-hmm. Um, we got to keep this conversation going. Absolutely. All right. So when this episode of Sunstorm goes out into the world, the election will be two weeks away. (laughs) I can't wait. I can't can't even picture it. Okay. All right. It's happening. So any words of advice or action items for our Sunstorm listeners for these next two weeks? I think that just keep it simple. So many people don't vote because no one ever talk to them or even asked them. And there were people in all of our communities that we go like, God, you know, I just need to reach out and say, you know, did you register? Do you know where how to vote? Again, as Alicia referenced earlier, you know, if you can't figure out another way to help them, like just go to supermajority, see if they're registered and they could get a copy of their ballot. They can figure out where they can vote. They can figure out what the hours are. They can find out if they can vote early in person. It's it's not everything as we know, and we talk about this a lot at Supermajority, like elections aren't the be all end all. It's just the place where we get to push that door open and get to the other side where we have a fighting chance of making the kind of change we want to make. And I guess the only other thing, Alicia, Alicia and I, Jen, I want to say is I want everybody who's listening not to think that our work ends on November 3rd. That's because right. we got to be ready to be in the streets and we got to be ready to be doing whatever it's going to take to make change happen. And, and uh, we are, we are not going to know everything on November 4th. Mm. There'll still be a lot of organizing left to do. That's right. We are in election season, which means it doesn't end November 3rd. And in fact, we're going to have a long road to hoe right afterwards. So thank you, Cecile. It is always a pleasure to chat with you. It always lights a fire inside us to like learn from you and to ideate and strategize with you. So thank you. And people can follow you at Cecile Richards on all the socials. And if you want to get more engaged in the work that we're doing this fall, text SUNSTORM to 97779. We'll be sending regular updates on how you can take action on all the issues you care about. And don't forget to check out sunstormpod.com where we'll have additional information on Cecile and how you can get involved in all the good things that she's doing. Two more weeks until the elections of our lives. We got this fam, big deep breaths. And until next week, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, Cecile. We love you. Love you too. Thanks Mm -hmm. for having me. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Aijan Poo, and Christina Mevs Apgar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton like kind of a once and oh is that ollie Ollie. oh my god that is ollie